Welcome to another powerful message from One Life OK. We really hope you enjoy it. I believe we're stepping into something significant. You know, it was a year ago, this next week or so, that my dad passed away last year. And so it didn't seem that strange to me when I went to the doctor because one of the things that I'm kind of a, people call me a pattern watcher. I like to watch the patterns of the supernatural. And right now there are just things that begin to happen that begin to show me things in the spirit. One of the things is really strange that um, people who are feelers like CC and a few other people in here, one of the things that happens to them is they get, I would call it a depressive feeling. And one of the things that they have to learn is that that depressive feeling is an indicator of something in the spirit. But since we weren't trained with our feelings, we naturally just think about it. If the Holy Spirit's trying to indicate something and I have labeled it as depression, even though that's not its label. Has anyone ever mislabeled you? Yeah, well, see, that's just what happens. We mislabel what the Holy Spirit's actually doing with terms that we understand from the world. And when we step into supernatural training, we begin to learn that all those definitions and all those labels that we had were all misappropriated. They were actually stuck on things that are wrong. And so one of the things about, have you ever been told you're too sensitive? Anybody ever been told that? Everybody hadn't been told that. But that, that, that thing in you that is too sensitive, that's because the world didn't understand why you were made the way you were made. And so they didn't know how to label it because honestly, not too many people want to actually be trainers because we're all looking to do our thing. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I remember the day when God said, your, your thing is you're a trainer. And I thought, well, I just thought my thing was going to be something different than that. And so because of these patterns that begin to happen and they started, um, what is today, Wednesday, I think they started Monday night with my little feeler over here. I begin to take note of the atmospheres changing for her. It's no different than, you know, when you go out and you look at the moon and it has that ring around it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Did you know it's going to rain within three days of that? Did anybody know that's what that means? How many knew that's what that meant? Great. Three of us. Anyway, that's just another one of those things that you can learn. So when I see the ring around her moon, I'm just kidding. When I see, when I see this thing that begins to happen to her, it's an indicator I begin to perk up. Now, see, what happens for me is... You know, this thing with my mom began to happen. So I'm seeing, I'm trying to perk up to what the Holy Spirit's saying to her, but I also have a weighty thing that's happening. And see, in life, that's what we have to learn to manage. That's why we have to be resilient. Because simultaneously, while I'm dealing with my mom's cancer diagnosis, I'm having to try to attune to what God's saying to her. Yeah. 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 That's, that's what the gig is. Anybody want to do this gig with me? or? Yes. And see, part of what happens to us is if we can't figure something out fast, right. 
we start mislabeling it just really fast. And so I wanted to read you a couple of things that I feel like go along with what I want to say tonight. Um, can you do number four? Um, I Randall Randall Worley, I like him. He's kind of a philosopher friend of mine. He says, you are not responsible for other people's feelings. Say, thank the Lord. And neither are they responsible for yours. Say, thank the Lord again. The only feelings you have full control over are your own. You can't work harder on someone else's challenges more than they are willing to work on it themselves. Now, one of the reasons I feel like the Holy Spirit prompted me to see this was because one of the things, what happened to me was I began, I woke up this morning with this thought that a covenant is made up of more than one party. That was the thought that came to my mind. Now, I haven't been thinking about covenant. I think Bailey and I had a little conversation yesterday where I maybe mentioned something about how covenants work or something. But it wasn't like I'm not studying on it. I'm not like secretly thinking about it or anything. And the next thing that he told me was that the bylaws of the covenant are agreed upon by the parties. Once someone doesn't operate in the agreement, they're actually out of the covenant. You know, I think this could really free us even in marriage a lot. You know, whenever we, whenever, whenever God makes a covenant, God's a God of covenant. I'm going to play you a little video about that here in just a second. He's a God of covenant. And so because he's a God of covenant, he keeps trying to make covenant with mankind, but he writes the bylaws. Let me give you another example. So in my edition, they have covenanted bylaws. So when we went to sign the papers for the house, they gave us the booklet of the covenant. And they said, if you're going to buy a house in this edition, you have to live by this booklet. So that means I can't paint my house pink. Now see... I can say, well, I can paint my house pink because what, what, what would I be saying? I own it. This is the American way right here. I own it. But see, I signed the document that said I will go by the bylaws of the covenant. I didn't write the covenant. And so because I stepped into that, then now I'm governed by it. So what could they do if I paint my house pink? They could sue me. For moolah, not muha, but moolah. <laughs> right? Now listen, this, this will really help you. Everything about God stems from how well he does covenant. He does covenant well. Yes. We don't. So who's the adjusters? I'm adjusting. Now the strange thing was I... I got up and I read a couple of things about covenant and I had these really cool definitions. Did I write those down? I don't even think I wrote those down. Um, but in the Greek, the, the word covenant, it means a, 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 an agreement together, right? 
But in the Greek definition, it made a special note there, and it said God's covenant with Noah. And I was thinking, we talked about that. I'm trying this new program to see if I'm going to like it. Don't show that yet. Um, that'll make them all get crazy. And so, so I was thinking, we've been talking about that, right? Yes. What was the covenant he made with Noah? I think it sums it up. I do, I do think I wrote this down. This is number... Let's do number nine. Oh, I did. It was number eight, wasn't it? Number eight. Number eight. That's it. That's the one I wanted to see. The agreement. God's covenant with Noah. There it is. Number nine. This is the scripture. Never again. This is God. Never again will I curse the earth because of people. Remember what happened? I read it to you a couple weeks ago, right? People were doing what? What they're doing right now. Right? Not in covenant with God. Even though the imagination of their hearts are evil from their childhood, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. I promise this. As long as earth exists, there will always be seasons of planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. What is he saying? I'm not going to destroy it. Now I've created sowing and reaping. That's when it happened right there. That was that was that covenant. Wow. Now, I saw this really interesting thing today because the reason why we're talking about this tonight is that CC had written a little thing yesterday. I hadn't read it. We hadn't talked about her nothing. And the first line of her what she wrote yesterday, this word she got from God had to do with a question about covenant. And or, or we wouldn't be talking about it tonight probably. And so because of that, I found this amazing video on covenant. Now, I know there's some things in here some of you may not agree with, so don't get your panties in a wad, okay? This is just an overall view. I know it wasn't an apple, so don't get hung up there. And, and just let him tell us about these covenants. Can we do that? It's, 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 about, it's about maybe seven minutes or so. Do you know what a covenant is? A covenant is a contract or an agreement. In the Bible, covenants are made between God and His people. There are eight covenants in the Bible. Understanding these covenants is the key to understanding the entire meta-narrative of God's purposes and ultimate will for His people. Let's take a look. The Edenic Covenant. The key word here is the word rule. In Genesis 2.15, right after God had created man, He put him in the garden and told him to care for it. From the very beginning, God's eternal purpose for man was to rule and enjoy him forever. Psalm 8 says, You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. David was saying, You've made something from nothing. You're powerful. And you've made man ruler over your creation to show your glory. But man rebelled and forsook his position. We all know the story. Adam ate from the tree that God told him not to eat and brought sin into the world. The penalty for sin was death because God would not let man live eternally in his sin, so man lost it. We will need a second Adam to reclaim God's original purpose for man to rule, but only after he redeems man from his sin, which brings us to the next covenant. Number two is the Adamic covenant. The chief word here is the word redemption. So because of Adam's sin, God curses man, animals and the earth, so it will yearn for his redemption. So immediately after sin occurs, God tells us how he will deal with it. 
Genesis 3.15, God reveals his unconditional covenant and his curse upon the serpent by saying, I will put enmity between you and your seed, meaning Satan, and the woman's seed, meaning Jesus. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Satan will inflict minor damage on Christ through crucifixion, but Christ will inflict major damage on Satan by defeating the curse of death. Jesus is the only one who can accomplish this because he will be born of the Holy Spirit, incarnated, going around the curse, born without man's sin. As time went on, man's newfound sin deteriorated into a sick and depraved wasteland of evil until every intent and thought on his heart was wicked. And God said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And that took place in Genesis 6, verse 7. Number three is called the Noahic Covenant. The key word here is the word restraint. This covenant shows an attribute of God that we can be grateful for, and that is his restraint. For instead of blotting out the entire human race, he preserved Noah and all the animals in the ark and restrained his wrath, partly because of his mercy, but also partly because of his covenants, which he cannot change. Then in Genesis 8:21, God makes a covenant that he will never again destroy all living creatures, and gave Noah and the earth the rainbow as a sign of that covenant promise. But man would soon turn back to sin in an effort to make a name for himself at the Tower of Babel, where we see the introduction of other gods. So God scattered them among the nations to begin a new nation for himself. Our fourth covenant is called the Abrahamic covenant. The key word here is the word restore. In Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, God chooses one man through whom he will restore his people to himself, Abraham. And in that covenant, God promises him three things. In verse 1, he promises him land. In verse 2, he promises him a people. And in verse 3, he promises him blessing. The land was Israel. The people were the Jews. And the blessing is they will be the touchstone of God towards all the people of every nation to know of him through them, to bless those who bless you and to curse those who curse you. And God made good on his promise too, because as the nation grew greatly, Egypt enslaved them and God saw their affliction and cursed Egypt greatly through Moses and brought them safely out in the Exodus. Our fifth covenant is called the Mosaic Covenant. Key word here is the word reveal. Now that Israel had grown into a great multitude of people, God brought them to Mount Sinai to make a covenant. This covenant was to serve as a temporary supervisor, teaching the righteous standards of God and reveal man's sin until the coming of Christ. In Leviticus 26, God tells Israel in verse 1, have no other gods. Verse 2, Keep the Sabbath. Verse 3, keep his laws and commandments. So while the first four covenants were only up to God, the Mosaic covenant has conditions for man. And through those conditions, man will have his sin revealed and he will see the need for a sacrifice. The Mosaic covenant was temporary until Christ fulfilled every requirement of it, living perfectly and dying as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all who believed. The sixth covenant is called the Palestinian covenant. Its key word is return. Well, the old guys died and the young guys forgot the Mosaic covenant and didn't keep God's laws. So in Deuteronomy 29, God tells them that they will not keep his covenant. And in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2 and 3, he tells them, come back to me. 
Because when they do, and verse 4 and 5 reminds them of what God promised in the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. In verse 6, something more, a new heart, which hasn't happened yet until Christ returns and gathers them to a new land. The seventh covenant is called the Davidic covenant. The key word here is the word reign. After 500 years of judges chaotically administering God's law, God appointed a king named David. King David loved the Lord with all of his heart, and in 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, God makes a covenant with David that he will give David's son Solomon three things. Number one, a throne. Number two, a house. And number three, a kingdom forever. After David died, Solomon received the benefit of this covenant with the most prosperous kingdom in Israel's history. But the covenant promise was forever, and Solomon eventually died. So this covenant had a second meaning, to reveal David's greater son of another nature, Jesus Christ, who would be from David's royal line 490 years later. The eighth covenant was called the New Covenant. Key word here is the word regenerate. After David and after many evil kings in Israel and Judah, God sends Israel into exile under Babylon. But before he does, he promises them in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 27 through verse 34, that he will bring them back one day and give them, and God invents a term here, he will give them a new covenant. In verse 32, God says they have been like babies needing their hand held. But in verse 33, one day they will be sons with new hearts, like a Jewish boy going through bar mitzvah becoming a man. This is Israel's bar mitzvah. The law was for babies, teaching them about their sin. Grace is for sons of God, with the law written on their hearts. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It hasn't happened to Israel yet. But Jesus spoke of this new covenant at the Last Supper for the church as we were grafted in. So, we got their king and their covenant. And in verse 34, God will forgive everything they've done. The Christian's purpose doesn't cast aside Israel, but makes Israel jealous until the second coming of Jesus, when all the covenants will be fulfilled and God's purpose from the very beginning for his children to rule and enjoy him forever will be accomplished once and for all. And those, ladies and gentlemen, are the covenants of God. That's good, right? There's God 101 for you. So I wanted to just talk for a minute before Cece comes, and I'm going to change mics, okay? Let me turn that off. I want to talk for a minute about, if I was to title tonight, I would title it Competing Covenants. Uh, you can throw up number seven. These are the three covenants that I feel like we as people struggle with the most. And the reason why is because our godly covenant and the standard that when we gave our lives to Jesus, we really stepped into the opportunity to be in covenant with God. That's that's really what it's about. God's standard is, is made out of the nature of God. So that that was that who God is in nature is first. It's already established. We 
we are not here to to judge whether we like his ways or judge whether we agree or d- judge whether or not they're good or bad. That's not the point of humanity. The point of humanity is to come in relationship with God. And now he wanted us to make the circle look like heaven. That was the intention. And so everything God did was to make covenant easy. We can see this. Now what has happened if you think about, I, I got a couple of scriptures um, about God's covenant that I, that I read there. I think I have one more. I don't have it on a slide. Um, in, in Jeremiah 33, he alluded to Jeremiah. Um, Cece, I think, may talk about Jeremiah a little bit. But he said this in Jeremiah 33, 19. The word of the eternal came to Jeremiah, and the eternal said this. If you can figure out a way... To break my covenant with the day and break my covenant with the night. Have you ever thought about that? God has covenant with daytime and nighttime. I mean, think about it. The enemy can't touch it. No matter what, daytime's going to come tomorrow. The enemy can just mess with us a little bit, but he can't mess with the covenant that God has made with his creation. So since the enemy can't infiltrate, he can't change that. Man can't either. That should tell us something about how important the covenant is between God and man. I don't know. It gives me a lot of comfort because the enemy can't break my covenant with God. The only thing that breaks it is when I don't concede to live by the bylaws. And the bylaws are easy because I'm in covenant. Okay, let's go back. So we live in this edition. I don't need to think about painting my house pink. I can't. And live there. That's, that's the simple way to look at life on earth. You don't need to think about doing stuff that's outside the covenant. You can't. You don't have permission. If you choose to, just like if I choose to paint my house pink, I can. I will suffer a consequence for my choice. That's a really good way to look at how it works out with God. And see, I don't, I can't, that's what he said. Sons experience grace. That's the difference. When I'm not a son, I am a whiny baby. And I'm wanting people to satisfy my needs because I'm whiny. Because I'm a baby. And whiny babies find other people to meet their needs so that they don't have to go to God. Aaron's making that face. I was just repeating it. So that's what he said. If you can figure out a way to break my covenant with the day and with the night so they don't always arrive on schedule, which is the very rhythm of the earth. Only then 
will my covenant with my servant David be broken? So basically, he was given a metaphor. It's never going to happen. The rhythm of the earth was created by God. The rhythm of mankind was created by God. All I have to do is move myself into the rhythm of him. When I don't fight against that, when I don't try to do things that I know. And see, that's the moral conscience. The conscience of man knows what is pleasing to God. Then I work within the peaceable fruit of why I'm here. Doing things in keeping with peace. And then when my spiritual gift radar goes off, I don't label it negative. Now, if I'm a baby, I do. If I'm a baby, I whine. Because I'm not getting my way. I'm not using and learning or training or trying. I'm just wanting it all to change because I'm a baby. And so my covenant experience is different when I'm a baby than when I'm a son. No, you didn't get it. Let me read it to you. Hebrews 12. Don't underestimate the value of the discipline and training of the Lord. Don't get depressed. It's in the book. I'm just reading it. Some words on a page. Don't get depressed when he has to correct you. For the Lord's training of your life is the evidence of his faithful love. And when he draws you to himself, it proves you are his delightful child. Now see, every one of us was raised in a punishment family. We didn't know anything different. We didn't even know we had a soul that was whiny and a baby and kicking and screaming and one this way. But the covenant God is like, I'm going to have to fix that in you. You are all about you. Everything you're doing is all about you. Grow up. Grow up. I mean, Madeline's five years old. And she's down. She got the word. She got down on her face. Where everybody else should have been and said, they said, my mom's feet. We don't even know how to respond to the prophets because we're a baby. And everything, everything is about me, me. And the God of the covenant saying, it ain't about you. It hasn't ever been about you. It's not going to be about you tomorrow. It's about me. And I will have a people. 
that will be on their face and I will have a people that will be sons and I will have a people that will believe even if they're not good at it, they will keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and they won't sit in service with their arms all folded acting like somebody proved me right. They won't. Because why? The covenant they signed. They don't want a pink house because Papa don't want a pink house. They don't want to sin because Papa said don't sin. They don't want to be selfish because Papa said love. They don't want to be self-consumed because Papa said you can't be. They want to be a poured out offering. They want to be liquid at his feet. They want someone to come and say, tell me what's wrong. Discipline me, discipline me, discipline, please. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, because it's proof of love. It's proof of love. This is what he said. Fully embrace God's correction as part of your training. Can I help you? If you would quit bucking it, you would find out it's not very painful. You know, this is servant leadership covenant around here. I promise you, I will serve more than everyone else. And I'm teaching you to serve. It's not about you getting in trouble. It's not about making mistakes. No one cares. It's about relabeling your gifts to be appropriate in the supernatural so you can wield the sword over here and wield it over there. Because it ain't about you. It's not about whether your marriage is good or bad. It's not about whether all your kids are in church or not. It's not about any of that. When I begin to exalt that all above why I'm here, I've missed it. You're here for a purpose. I don't care if your husband don't do it, your wife don't do it, your kids don't do it, your coworker don't do it. It doesn't matter who do it. Do it. He's going to look at you and say, did you do it? Did, did you know me? Do you know that word is intimacy? Intercourse. Did you know me? Did you let me see into you? Did you? That's all he's going to ask us. Embrace his correction. This is what, for he's doing what any loving father would do we didn't have that and we had a loving father that corrected you so gently and kindly and and was there championing you on i would doubt that anyone in the room could raise their hand does that mean it doesn't exist you go be it you go be it you learn how to be honoring you learn how to be diplomatic you know, just today, Cece and I were talking about a dream she had. We would have interpreted it one way a few years back. And she literally said to me, <laughs> I like you so much. She said, I think this might mean something different if I had different eyes. Now, she probably don't remember, but she's been praying that that resurrection eyesight would be hers. She's been saying it. That's what I want to do to do i want to see things through the eyes of a resurrected person in that moment her eyes were open to her dream and she saw a whole new interpretation this is what it says we all should welcome god's discipline 
as the validation. You want validation? How many were looking for validation? Right here it is. Discipline is the validation. Listen, discipline is going to come in a way that you're not disciplined. You know, nobody needs, I don't need to set an alarm. I have that 440 alarm. I don't need to set one. I wake up every morning before five without an alarm. I don't even like it. But that's what he said to come. Now, you may not be able to get up. If he tells you to get up at five, you may not be able to. You may have to set 10 alarms. Because you have to set an alarm doesn't mean it's not the time he said to get up. I used to have to set an alarm until my internal alarm clock yielded. It's the same way. Whatever he's trying to discipline in you, he is unrelenting. He will do it till you're 90. 100, 110 till you die. Because everything breathing has purpose. Everything breathing has a purpose by God. And it's not what someone said over you. It's what he said. And if you don't know what he said, probably somebody told you something really stupid about you. But it's not God. I promise you the greatest hurdle you're going to face in life is getting over what people said you shouldn't be. It's rare that you are raised with someone not only speaking over you, your purpose of God, but actually demonstrating it. So what does that mean? We're left to go find some people that are demonstrating it. That's my only desire is that we demonstrate who we are. Are we jerks? No. Do we do jerky things? Yeah. So what has to happen? We have to repent. We have to go say sorry. I was a jerk. I was an idiot. I was a whiny baby. To you. Have you ever... Did Aaron ever do whiny baby stuff to you? Aaron did whiny baby stuff to me. And I said, stop. You're a man. Stop doing whiny baby stuff. And he let me say that to him. He wallowed around the ground for about three months and he caught up and was resurrected and he never did whiny baby stuff again. Get with someone that won't let you be a whiny baby. Aubrey was a whiny baby. I remember we were sitting in the upper room and she was whiny babying me to death. And I looked at her and I said, stop being a whiny baby. She thought it was her way to get love. It's validation of authentic sonship. Validation. You need to write that in your room somewhere. Validation of authentic sonship is God's discipline. And guess what? He will use people to help you get disciplined. I could help you. I could do it in three months if you'd yield. First thing I'm going to ask you is what do you do with your time? Hardly anybody will tell me. 
That's why it goes on for year after year after year. Still waiting on some people who've been here 12 years. What do you do with your day? Still don't know. Why? Because we don't want anyone to speak to what's mine. It's all about me. But see, he will come in another way. Because what is he trying to do? He's trying to validate that you're his child. You can't do it without him. You can't think without him. You can't breathe without him. You can do nothing without him. So stop acting like you can and step into sonship. Which means he'll go, son, you're not looking like your daddy right now. You're looking at a, like a poor human representation of an alien but you're not looking like me don't you want him see I want him to tell me when I'm not looking like him I think we already know honestly I think we already know and we justify it with all kinds of things and that's these two other covenants this is really quick oh lord really quick the first one is the guilt covenants. They always produce dead works. How many have ever lived under guilt? When I met Lynn, everything was under guilt. All of her parenting techniques, all of her going to church techniques, all of her worship techniques, all of her trying to figure out her purpose was all under guilt. And what does guilt produce? Since it produces dead works, what do dead works look like? Activities that cannot bear fruit. Activities that cannot bear fruit. Activities that cannot bear fruit. If you have been under the religious spirit, I was. You, if you're under it right now, you're doing dead works. Right now. I'm just helping you. Why would you want to do one more second? I like this. Hebrews 9 says, I wanted, I wanted to read all of Hebrews 9. Can y'all go read it tonight? It's really good. Or tomorrow. How much more will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal Holy Spirit, willingly offered himself unblemished, that is, without moral or spiritual imperfection, we just saw it on this little video, to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works. So that tells us where it lives. Guilt lives in our conscience. Who determined you should be guilty? That part of your life needs to be exchanged. That part of your life, you need to come to him and say, maybe you were a crappy dad or a crappy mom. I like crappy. I've been saying crappy a lot lately. <laughs> when I grew up, that was a cuss word, so this feels really edgy right now. I'm feeling edgy right now. What was I saying before I said crappy three times? Yeah, you have to say to him, I give you my dad. He disappointed me, hurt me, didn't know me, didn't get me, didn't see me, wasn't around, wasn't, 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 wasn't. And I, this is what I say to God. God, do you have any of those attributes that I need? Because I know he put that need in me. If I will get my eyes off of people, my eyes off of people, and put it on what he can provide, I will be in abundance. What's the thing I need from a father? I need to know that he would champion me. Oh, man, I just feel that from Papa so much. 
Like Papa champions me so much. Y'all can tell me I'm a cult. And I got that one again this week. It's so exciting when I get it. And I don't care what you say. When we say stupid stuff, it just exposes our own immaturity. I don't need your validation. You're going to get to the place where you don't need mine one day. Because you get so much from him, you're full. My cup of validation runneth over. So, so you can come give me some. But it already runs over. What are you missing? What are you missing? Seen, known, heard. What are you missing? Let him fill it up till your cup of being seen runs over. He has all the answers for all those things. But when I'm in covenant with guilt, I make decisions out of guilt that cost me my other covenant relationships. Every time. Listen, let me help you married people. This, this next one's for you, this unequally yoked. It's not just for you. But the truth is, here's, here's 2 Corinthians. Don't continue to team up with unbelievers in mismatched alliances. For what partnership is there between righteousness and rebellion? Anybody that is not serving God is in rebellion. Utter rebellion. So you, you could just pray that God would illuminate their need for repentance. Don't pray some other prayer. And don't, you, you can act like you're in a covenant because you're married, but you're not. Because they're not living by the bylaws of the king if you are or vice versa. Remember when you weren't? When you're not living under the bylaws of anything, you're in no covenant. In zero covenant. That means that God has no, um, he has no need to fix it all for you. See, my covenant affords me protection. It affords me things. I'm just telling you, God is a covenant God. And you can act like you can choose another way to be with him, but you can't. And when you step into a covenant relationship with other people on earth, they've got to keep up their end or you're not in covenant with them. I can say I am. I can say I'm in covenant with people. People have told me, I have people who have come here and told me, I will be in covenant with you for a lifetime. You're my, you're my root to my Naomi or whatever. And they're not here anymore. I'm still here. So I'm still upholding my end of the covenant. But we're not in covenant anymore. Not because I can't be. And see, that's what happens, those unequally yoked covenants. We spend so much time, I'm telling you, I promise you, if you would step into the godly covenant, it would change everything around you. It would illuminate who is not in a godly covenant quickly. Now, I wanted, I have tons more I could talk about, but I wanted to give Cece a little bit of time. She had this amazing experience, and... And I really feel like that God, through this dream she had, is inviting us to what I said during prayer. He's inviting us into a new moment in time, a seven-day period of new intimacy. Now, I don't know about you, 
But intimacy for me is letting God see into me. Letting him see something about me that maybe I don't like to see. You know, when the doctor called and said, I'm sorry, you know, the cancer's back. Lynn was with me. I just put my hands in the air and I said, but God, but God, but God, but God, but God. That's what I said until I felt better. I just kept doing it until, but God was bigger than the cancer diagnosis. See, that's, that's what covenant affords us because that's who we serve. That's who we're in covenant with. That's who we're protected by. That's who we believe in. That's who we serve. Everything's about him. It's not about us. And so it changes our trajectory. So when we go to get these tests run, we run into Sherry. Sherry needed us to come by yesterday. We left with snacks because we were Sherry's best friend before it was over. Why? Because it's not about me. I didn't get comfort from Sherry. I gave comfort to Sherry. And you remember what I said, how they didn't know how special my mom was? Sherry did. Sherry knew. And see, that's what covenant does. That's what stepping into covenant and resting in the covenant relationship and not having all these other covenants actually acting like they can all just operate in my life. They can't. They will destroy me. And since God's a covenant God, he sets the bylaws. So come on, Cece, and share. Wow, it's a fiery word tonight, isn't it? I love it. Before I share what I was what I'm gonna share, I have to share a comical additional prophetic word that I was just getting down there. That something that happened tonight. I don't know if you noticed the t-shirt that Tisa has on, but it's you know a cool Holy Spirit graphic tee and it's got all kinds of cool stuff on it. Well, um, I was having dinner with her tonight and she at one point reached down and was trying to wipe something off her shirt. And she was like, wait, is that part of my t-shirt? And I looked over from the side and I'm like, yeah, I think that's part of the design. Well, I just realized sitting down there that what she was trying to wipe off of her shirt was the dove's mouth. So it was that little bitty bit of color that's actually the mouth of the dove. And I, I, you know, I just felt the Holy Spirit on it. I couldn't not say it. I'm just saying, if you are hearing tonight, don't mistake it. It's just some mess on your shirt. You need to wipe off and keep going. Make sure you are listening. We want to be hearers and doers of the word. So that's not just a, a blemish on what you're wearing. It's not just uh, something that tarnished, you know, who you are or your identity or what you're clothed in or anything like that. You guys run with the metaphor, okay? It's not that. It's actually the voice of God in his mercy speaking to us tonight. So don't try to wipe off the dove's mouth, okay? <laughs> I couldn't not see it while she was up here, so I had to share it. So, um, so this is a little prophetic journey that um, I went on and I'm just going to jump right in and tell you where I started from. I was feeling really discouraged yesterday. It had been for a couple of days. And I decided while I was cleaning out the hot tub, I would listen to some a message. Um, and I, you know, I like Johnny Enlow and I hadn't heard his commentary, his prophetic message that he heard about the Super Bowl yet. So I thought, well, I'll listen to that. I usually, you know, enjoy listening to him. So Sure enough, I started feeling my discouragement change over to encouragement. 
at the very, very end of his message when I finally was able to hear it. Now, just a little quick background on what his overall message is, or one part of it, okay? If you watch the Super Bowl and if you pay attention to that kind of thing, if you're listening for the Holy Spirit's message, um, I happened to catch at the very end of the game, you know, the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. It was their third win. Um, it was Pat Mahomes' third win, I should say. That was the Chiefs, like the third one since the 1970s, I think. He And Pat Mahomes threw for a total of 333 yards in the game. The winning touchdown was a three-yard touchdown, and they won the game with a three-point lead. And the stadium in Las Vegas, they played at, the address is 33-33 something, something, something. I don't even know. Big emphasis on the number three, right? So I knew there was going to be something coming from that. And so sure enough, I actually saw Johnny Enlow and James Gull mentioned this in their um, something they posted. So two well-known prophetic voices brought us to Jeremiah 33-3. Jeremiah 33.3. So that's what I, um, it's such a great verse, right? Such a great verse. So um, I have it here in the voice. I'll just read it to you real quick. In the voice, um, it says, call to me and I will answer you. I will tell you of great things, things beyond what you can imagine, things you could never have known. Such a great verse, right? And so in that moment, I felt that, like I said, that was when I heard that, I was like, oh, this is actually an an incredibly huge moment of discouragement for for Jerusalem in history. When God prophesies this through Jeremiah, he says, call to me and I will answer you. Huge, devastating time in history for them, okay? They are in the middle of being exiled on their way to 70 years of Babylon, okay? I mean, they were being taken over. Jerusalem was coming down. They were being lined up and marched off in the middle of their be- of it being conquered. So it was a terrifying time, certainly looked discouraging. And the eternal one says, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you. And just in that moment, I felt that little you know, spark of encouragement start to come. And so I began to read in Jeremiah 33. And then, of course, I had to go back. I had to read a few chapters ahead of that and after. So I read, uh, I think, Jeremiah 31 through 34. And so I learned some cool stuff. Jeremiah is known as the new covenant prophet because he actually prophesies in the middle of Jerusalem being, you know, receiving this kind of harsh punishment and the people being exiled to Babylon um, that he prophesies of Jesus coming. This in Jeremiah, you know, is where it talks about that um, the seed is in the stump. You remember Tisa did a message years ago that um, out of the stump of David's lineage, there will be a new righteous king. And he goes on and on in these few chapters here about his covenant. And like uh, like Tisa shared, I we hadn't talked about this, so I didn't know she was thinking about covenant yesterday or this morning, whenever it came to you. But um, it was really interesting to me because he goes on and on. He talks about how my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, my covenant with the Levite priests. And basically, you can't break this covenant. I will not break this covenant. But in this period of exile, um, the people are doing ridiculous things. Okay, and and I'll, I'll share on that in just a minute. It's just pathetic when you see the overarching view, you know, like if anybody ever told our story like this, there would be moments where we were like, that's just ridiculous. You know, why couldn't we see that? That's what was I thinking? What was I thinking? And so this was one of those times. But anyways, I started. Um, so in I'll just go ahead and say it in 
the, they're in exile. They're being captivated. They're not, they haven't completely been, the Jer- Jerusalem hasn't been completely destroyed yet, but they're being lined up. And God keeps been giving them warnings, giving them warnings that you're worshiping idols. You know, you've broken the covenant with me on and on and on. And they just won't do anything. Well, so then they decide in a moment of terror to make, to follow one of God's laws. They're like, okay, we will make a new covenant with you. We will honor the, what you told us to do. And we'll let our slaves go because they were supposed to, after six years, let any Hebrew slaves go because they will have served their time or whatever. So they hadn't been doing that because it was beneficial to them to just keep them as slaves. So they decide they make this big um, covenant ceremony with God, recommitting themselves to follow his rules and make a covenant with each other that they're going to let all the slaves go. So then they do let all the slaves go. Well, then the siege against the city um, pulls back for a little bit. So, in, you know, we don't really know what the timeline was here, how long, how many days or weeks or months or who knows how long it was. Well, they just decide, nah, you know, never mind. If we're not actually going to lose this land, then I want my slaves back because I'm going back to making my own way. I'm going back to doing what's selfish, right? So when they were going to, in this moment of desperation, they pretended to basically act like they were making a covenant with God and they made a covenant with each other. But it really, if you look at the heart of it, it was out of selfish motives. It wasn't out of what we talked about the other night, which was loving Jesus. It wasn't out of loving or respecting, revering Yahweh. It was like the consequences are right in my face now. So maybe if I appease you and do what you say, I'll get what I want. But then when it looked like I might get what I want, then I'm going to go back to doing things my own way and I'm going to make all enslave all these people again. So then God is like, he has it right. He's like, okay, you didn't, you made the covenant. Now you're spitting in the face of the ceremony. And he even references the, um, the um, practice back in that time. If you've heard about how covenants were made, they were, they would cut a covenant and they would cut a covenant, meaning they would take this animal and they would literally cut it in half and lay it side one side on, on the other. And then the people, two parties making a covenant, would walk between it. And the implication was, I'm saying I commit to doing this covenant thing with you. But, and if I don't, if I break the covenant, then I will be like that animal. I will be divided and dismembered. Divided and dismembered. And that's essentially what I'm seeing is what happens. Like God is talking in these same verses about his covenant cannot be broken. He's like, I will bring you back. You're on your way to Babylon right now, but I will bring you back one day and I will restore this land and it will be fertile land again and people will buy houses and it will be a wonderful place. And it even talks about the brides will will sing again and the brides and the bridegrooms, their voices will be heard again. Wonderful things are going to happen right now. You're on your way to exile. Okay, but right, but I promise I will do this because my covenant will not be broken. So it's just a cool, um, paradoxical thing happening where he's pr- he's prophesying and declaring his commitment to the people, but he's saying the reality is you stepped out of covenant with me. You're the one who isn't obeying the covenant. You're do you're not doing your part, as Tisa showed in that video. At this point, the the covenant was between God and man that they would follow His laws. So it was a two-part covenant there. And God basically is saying, well, I'm still here. I am going to honor my covenant because this is what I will do in your future. But right now you have dismembered, you have separated yourself from me. You have divided us. 
in this process of not honoring the covenant. And I love this little part in, uh, you know, I can be a little bit sarcastic sometimes and I never know if I should feel convicted about that or not. I'm just saying I saw some sarcasm in Jeremiah where it was preceded by the eternal one said, and then he said some stuff and it was really sarcastic and I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. And so I feel validated, you know, when used appropriately, sarcasm could be good. I don't even know if I can find it here. Yeah, here it is. So he's saying all this stuff. You've defiled my name by forcing these men and women you freed back into slavery. That is why I proclaim the following. Since you have disobeyed me and not declared that your fellow countrymen are set free, I will now set you free from my protection. Uh-huh. That's what he said. I declare that you will be free to die by war, disease, and famine. I feel like he likes a good play on words, and he can be spicy. Yeah. So anyways, I got off on, off on that fun little tangent there. It was, this is the reality, though, of when we separate ourselves from him by not participating in a covenant, then we, we lose the protection of the covenant, not because of the other party, but because we've removed ourselves. We've dismembered ourselves. And so when I was reading this, one of the little um, commentary things I read in The Voice said it was amazing that people could go through this elaborate ceremony with this cut animal, like fairly recently, you know, this really dramatic sovereign type of ceremony, and then so quickly just forget. And the commentary said um, how peep humanity can do that, and it said they always will. And I was so grieved by that. I was like, wow, you know, my gosh, like they always will. Like that's your, you're saying humanity is just always going to drop the ball. And it really just weighed heavily on my heart. And so I began to talk to Papa about that, about covenant. And I was just like, wow, like what, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about covenants? How do you feel about the statement made that people will always eventually take the serious, solemn, sacred ceremonies of covenant with you lightly? Do you feel discouraged, Papa? Do you get dismayed by the hearts of mankind turning astray? And I went on to say some other stuff. And and let me just tell you, this was his answer. And I think the fact that there was he didn't specifically answer my questions is actually very, says a lot. Because this is what he went on to say. Daughter or son, I am opening a door of depth before you. I am swinging it wide despite its girth. Too heavy for a man, but weightless to me, for I have issued a decree. I have called you out from among the weeds to show you things I want seen. Your lack of strength, what you call weak, is your spirit adjusting to a brand new atmosphere. What you've known as weighty in the last season will float with ease beside you. What you called light, minimal, obscure, nothing will suddenly take on brand new meaning. You have entered a new realm of spiritual activity, a place where old definitions lack any meaning, a place where perceptions have an entirely new beginning. I've pulled you deeper into me 
and opened up new things for you to see. You must adjust to the pressures released. You must acclimate to the change in gravity, so to speak. Right now, you feel tired, but well-rested. You feel weightless, but lost without the sensation of what has been heavy. You feel alarmed by the lack of what you've been seeing, but relieved also by a new sense of freedom. He said, change, my sweet, is inevitable, even with me. The kingdom is always advancing as you love to repeat. But you also know that my ways are not linear or of this natural world. When my kingdom advances, it comes with less understanding. Atmospheres shift. Pressures change. What was right is now left. What was up is now down. Disorientation always abounds. But here in these moments, in your present state, you have the chance to taste the sweetest treat. Unlike your childhood where change meant a lack of safety, change with me brings a new level of my holding. Yes, you, my sweet delight, always bright. When change is coming your way, I draw you closer to me. I lift you up and hold you over the rough seas. I don't leave you to weather the crashing of the waves, expecting you to call it glorious. I don't tell you to raise your hands and consider it a thrill when inside you just wish something could be still. I know you and what you need better than anyone, even yourself. So when I swing wide the open doors for you, I invite my son to carry you through. Yes, the marriage carriage has brought you here to begin a new adventure together. Your bridegroom proudly lifts you into his capable arms as he crosses a threshold into the new. Daughter, son, you can consider this time a honeymoon, a time for the two of you to delight in each other and take all the time you need to drink deeply of the love shared between you. You have done the hard work to reach this day. You have pressed on despite the tension, wrestled with many a demon, and stood proudly to declare my victory in the face of your enemy. You have held the course, patiently waited, and prepared with diligence like a bride whose lamp is filled with oil. Now the time has come for you to feast on love to enjoy the spoils of victory, to celebrate with your bridegroom who has so powerfully fought for you. Don't you know that he has longed for this day? That he has held these moments in his heart and mind as a dream that would someday come to pass? His patience is matchless. His hunger unquenched by another. His loyalty in the seeking testifying of a coming victory. He has fixed his gaze on you, my bright delight, waiting for the day he too could taste of your devotion. So take this time to enjoy each other. Whisper to him in your quiet moments. Dance hand in hand as you explore our garden. It's time for you to dream again 
of what love could be in covenant with your bridegroom king. Can you imagine that's his, that's his response to me asking, are you discouraged, Papa? Are you disheartened by our fickle hearts? No, he's like, actually, let me point out what's really happening right here. He is so devoted to us. He say, let me turn, gently take your face and turn towards this bridegroom king that's actually holding you right now through a difficult transition, through whatever transition you're going through. He's lifting you up to carry you over the threshold of this transition into something new that's actually just another promise for something more, for something beautiful. He is so incredibly devoted to us. It is more than we can imagine, more than we could imagine his devotion to us, his commitment. His covenant to us is beyond our understanding of covenant, our definition of covenant. We We can be thankful for nights like this where we really try to flesh it out what the meaning of a covenant is, and but it's to stir up our recognition for how we can match him a little better, how we can come closer into mirroring him and his devotion to us. Now, I learned a little bit of interest. I had a few things the Holy Spirit highlighted for me in that word yesterday, and so I was seeking them out. I've mentioned a few times up here that the Holy Spirit will, you know, bring out things of these these historical Christian fiction books that I've been reading lately. And so there was a wedding in one of the books I read recently and I happened when I when I wrote this word I remembered that the bride and the groom went and spent 7 days by themselves basically so I looked up what's what was the what was the history for a Hebrew or Jewish wedding back in those days and of course they've translated into modern day too for a lot of in the Jewish culture but I learned this really interesting thing that um I, a few articles here it says This one says, the law, with its profound insight into the human psyche, required that the couple stay together during the first week to continue to celebrate the wedding. They are not to go to work or otherwise to separate. This tradition harkens back to Jacob, who celebrated seven days with Leah and then with Rachel. It became a custom even for non-Jews, it says. And so it says that Moses formally instituted this law that just like the, I think it's called the Shiva, which is seven days of mourning in the Jewish culture, that it said, this article explains it as extreme moments of love, just like death, are deeply emotional. It is difficult, if not impossible, for an individual to experience such traumatic moments or, or you know, elaborate moments of love and then continue life as if nothing out of the ordinary has happened. Moses ordained, therefore, that both celebration and commemoration be followed by a seven-day tapering period, during which one might ponder and accept the intensity of the event and allow it to be gradually integrated into the psyche. Seven days. Now, interestingly, it says that the community was asked to participate in this event, in both mourning and after a marriage, after a wedding celebration and celebration of love rather than loss, that um, every day there, I don't, there's a lot of details in there, but basically every day of the seven day period, people from the community would come and recite these prayers at various times with the various meals and that kind of thing. And they would basically be blessings, blessings, blessings. But it was stood out that the community was meant to be a part of that. It said, 
Um, at yeah, so it says that um, honeymoons are not planned by many traditions, the traditional honeymoon, what we now know. And I realized, too, the, the term honeymoon actually came from a rather depressing thing where it was like the height of your marriage is happening on your honeymoon and then the moon is going to fade out. Basically, everything from there is downhill. And so that that, you know, context is not is not so good. But this hits home with us rather than a honeymoon, as we've called it this time of spending seven full days together, just celebrating in the love that you're sharing, really letting it sink in, really seeking it out, really taking in who you're in partnership with, um, and also your community. It says, at the beginning, the new husband and wife must learn to accommodate each other in a familiar setting, not in some far off place that has no relation to the anticipated reality of their future lives. They are part of a family and a community, and that should be their primary environment. It's so interesting because there is saying that the honeymoon thing kind of sets people up for disappointment because you go off to something that's not really a part of your covenant or a picture of your life or why God's brought you together. But you, God brings you together, as Tisa said, a covenant marriage is meant to be with the family, with the community, and it's for a purpose in God. And so I love how it says that takes a while for humanity to adjust even in their mind to absorb what, how deep this love is actually meant to go and for me to learn how to operate differently than I used to be single. I knew how to operate in my community up until this point, right? But once I'm married now, I, everything I do is meant to be done with the person I'm in covenant with in mind that should be a part of my mind and it's this community it's this family so it's important actually they actually spend an entire year after the marriage where certain things are restricted like in my book there was the guy was a warrior and he didn't go off to war with the rest of the soldiers for a year because they're meant to learn to operate as one to see the reality of who they are in this covenant together um, another article said that these days of feasting were to serve as a focal point for communal rejoicing, like community, community rejoicing, and for the couple to begin their married life together while in the lap of the community. So, so interesting. They're meant to only eat, drink, and rejoice with each other, with each other and with their community about the covenant. And so... I'm thinking, implying this to what I was reading in Jeremiah, I feel like the Holy Spirit is calling us and inviting us into this seven-day period, which hopefully will be longer than that, you know, spend a whole year like, like they did, you know, and from there, I don't think we would, we would want to go one day without it, but a concentrated, intentional choosing to not do certain things, to not be um, led by other guilt covenants by other unequally yoked covenants, other things you've maybe made a covenant to um, without realizing that's what it is, but to in deep devotion to this one covenant, just letting him tell you about his love for you, letting, giving time for you to tell him about his, your love for him, really just soaking in and letting it sink in about what it really means for Jesus to love you, for God to love you, to, to call you a daughter and a son for Holy Spirit to be so committed to you. Like we really want to focus on this. And I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling us this because then we won't enter into covenants out for selfish reasons. We won't just decide to do that surface level obedience of what God said to do. 
out of um, selfishness. Because if you're committed to demonstrating love, then you're going, it's going to pull you into a perspective from that point. You're going to, that's what we want to do. We want to learn to go forward in our walk with this, with him in mind. Like we said just last week, which of course was, none of this was planned, the order of things, but the Holy Spirit knows the order that we have these messages. And so everything should be done out of a position of love for Jesus, not anything else, not religious duty, not performance, not striving, none of that stuff, not guilt, none of it. We shouldn't be doing any of it only out of love. So I did feel like this was an invitation for us to do that. And I'll post this word so you can reread it and even just press into the imagery of it, of, of Jesus, the bridegroom coming in this moment, you know, and there's, there's really cool stuff. If you look at the history of how the Jewish ceremonies for wedding back in the day, they would, they did a betrothal um, contract um, before the actual wedding ceremony. And from the time you were betrothed in this contract between your families, you were basically officially married. That was actually the bigger component, but you didn't live with your husband yet. But if you, if you broke off the thing, then you were considered to have divorced. I mean, it was a big deal. Like you're already betrothed. The contract was done. And that's where we're at now. The contract's already been written. If you're a born again believer, you know, you're, it's, you're married. You may not be living in the reality of his home for you yet, the home he built for you. You may not be there in your mind yet. But what would happen in back in that day is that for at some point in time, when the bride wouldn't necessarily know, the bridegroom would get dressed up like a king, if at all possible, and all of his friends and family would come and the, the people, the virgins with their lamp at night would come out and light the way and everybody would create this procession from the bridegroom's house to the bride's house. And he would come and take his wife at that point. And she would be prepared. She would be ready. She would be ready every night because she didn't know what night he was coming. But he would come and he would sweep her up and they would carry her back to his house. And he lived, she would live there from that point on. And so there's some beautiful imagery that, you know, God wrote every word of the Bible, every law in Moses's time. Everything was for a reason to paint the picture of his heart. So there's a lot we could we can press into there. Just in case you weren't convinced that this was from the Holy Spirit, I had another little nudge to look up. I This was the crazy thing. OK, I sat outside because it was nice yesterday. So I was writing this outside middle of the day and I finished writing it and I looked up middle of the day, blue sky, and the moon was out all of a sudden. The moon had risen up above the tree line. And I was just like, well, yeah, I didn't see you there before. I didn't, I don't think, I don't think you were up when I started writing. So I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. So I thought, well, I'm just going to look up and see if there's anything cool about the moon today. And I don't really know anything about all the phases of the moon or how that works, you know, but interestingly, this was yesterday. So February 20th, it says, um, the moon's current phase for today and tonight is a waxing gibbous phase, um, visible through most of the night sky, blah, blah, blah. Um, this phase of the moon lasts seven days, with the moon becoming more illuminated by each day, each day until it reaches the full moon. Seven days. It's exactly seven days. And then it said on February 20th, the moon is 11.11 .11 days old. I didn't even know that was a thing. 
It says, this refers to how many days it has been since the last new moon. So basically, it, there are these phases of the moon. They consider the moon to be start again every new moon. Okay, so the beginning of the cycle of the moon. So on yesterday, it happened to be 11.11 .11 days old. Now, if you know anything, 11, 11 jumps out at me. Um, and I always know that God's saying something when I see that. But this was, I mean, 11.11. .11. Who talks about days and, and decimals? Right? I probably would have said it was 11 days. No, it's 11.11. .11. He wanted to make sure we got it. Uh, the number 11, if you look it up, um, speaks of, it represents transition and prophecy. So this is an entire word about him carrying us over the threshold, transitioning into a new place through a new door, a prophetic word about transition on 11-11. The moon's 11-11, okay? And in it, its current phase is seven days, okay? So let's just take this seriously. Let's just, let's just receive this invitation from him and press into what he's telling us. You may feel convicted by this word tonight, and I hope you do. In whatever way you need to hear it, you need to be convicted. Don't wipe off the bird's mouth, okay? Don't wipe off the, dud's, the dove's beak. <laughs> he's speaking, and we want to get it. But he's telling you that you better run to this chamber with him, run to this seven-day period with him, and press into his love, because he doesn't want to do anything outside of love. Every conviction, every... A correction, as she said, is actually a demonstration of his love. So we've got to learn the language of his love for us personally. We've got to press into that, get an impression in our heart and our mind. Like that article said, let it sink into your psyche so that it changes how you operate. You can learn how to function in your day, in your family, in your community, knowing that you are, you are betrothed to the bridegroom king. Oh, Papa, you're so good. You're so good. You're so good. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. We love you. We love you. You are the most romantic uh, uh, that we've ever heard of. You beat romance in every category. You go above and beyond. You are the most supernatural, amazing, exciting exciting thing that we could ever know and partner with. So we just thank you for your invitation. I thank you for how fun you are. I thank you that you are just positioning things throughout our day. Even the moon, <laughs> you're positioning it for us so that we can just hear you and see you in a new way. As you said, there are things you want us to see because you want them seen. You aren't a God that wants to stay hidden. You're not trying to hide from us. You're not trying to keep secrets from us. You want the joy of the discovery relationally with us. So I thank you, Papa, for this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful invitation into what it truly means to be the bride and what it truly means for the bridegroom to be so devoted to us and that when we're going through transition that he just comes and picks us up to carry us over the threshold when it may feel funky it may feel disorienting we may feel afraid we may feel uncertain and he's carrying us it's his weight he's carrying the weight of the transition not us so i thank you papa i thank you for all that you've said tonight for all that you've prophesied for all the the clarifying words, the convicting words. Thank you for the words that are really moving us tonight, but that will continue to move us in the days to come. Holy Spirit, make it personal. If someone's missed a part of it, just bring it around in another way. Just keep, 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 keep speaking. We don't want to disregard what's coming out of the dove's mouth. It is precious to us, more precious than gold. We love you. We love you. We love you. We cannot live without you.
We have to have you, Papa. We have to have you. We are just little children. We have to have your fathering. We have to have it. So I thank you, Papa. We say we receive your fathering tonight. We receive your invitation. And we will be doers of the word, not just hearers. We love you, Papa. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from One Life OK. For more information, please visit us at onelifeok.com.